Well, as we've been talking about, throughout this whole series, we want to keep this meta-narrative, this, this thread throughout that ties it all together, uh, continuing. And if you've been with us, you know that that thread throughout is this, and it's at the top. Oh, it's not. I lied. It's not on here this morning. But you can write this down if you'd like. The big idea for the whole series is that growth in godliness, you could probably tell this to me right now altogether, growth in godliness transforms our faith from a claim to, <laughs> claim to a cause. Let's do it again. Growth in godliness transforms our faith from a claim to a cause. That's right. It's the process by which we as believers are continuing to be shaped into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Just as we were taught, with that rootedness and foundation in the faith, that we will continue to abound in thanksgiving and become the people that God created us to be. Last week we asked the question, as sort of a spiritual diagnosis of where we are in our growth with Christ, we asked the question, are you and I, are we increasingly concerned about the needs of others. This week, we ask this question. It may be a question you've never asked yourself, at least not maybe in these kinds of terms. Because when we say this in just a second here, the title of this message, it sounds a little weird. Like, like why would that be something that is a measure of our growth and godliness? The question this week is, are you delighting in the bride of Christ? Are you delighting in the body, the bride of Christ? That's the question we want to ask ourselves this week. Well, uh, thank you, Gene, for reading those scriptures, but uh, unfortunately, I changed my tactic toward the end of the week, and the bulletin was already printed. So the scriptures that we just read from Ephesians and, second, uh, and 1 Corinthians 3 are a little different than the scriptures we'll use today. I changed my tactic a little week there, so I've listed those sermons that we're going to be using in the order in which we'll use them in the handout in the middle of the pews, if you haven't passed them by yet. We're using those verses today. And I want to introduce just a big idea today that the main thing we're going to be talking about is this, that growing believers increasingly delight in the bride of Christ rather than many who disparage it. The blank there, that first blank, there are only two blanks today, uh, three blanks. The first one is disparage it. You see, it's real easy. It's real easy to talk bad about the body of Christ. We've all experienced people we know in our lives, maybe in our own lives. We've experienced people we know who have been hurt by people who claim the name of Christ. We've all experienced some of the difficulties of being part of a church family where things like our sin gets in the way of our relationships. Where my agenda, my agenda is what gets in the way of what's going on. The body of Christ, it's easy, friends, it's easy to disparage it. You know why? Because it's filled with sinners like you and me. And today we're going to look at how it is that we are created to delight in the bride of Christ. 
We're going to look at this image of what a bride of Christ is. It's easy, though, to look at all the other things that we know about that we've experienced. Just this week, I asked on my Facebook account, those of you who don't know what Facebook is, you may have heard the term. It's, it's, it's hard to describe. Um, it's on a website, and, and I have my own page, and somebody else has their own page, and, and someone might post pictures of their kids and say, here's us at Disney this week, and, and others from around uh, the world, really, who are friends of mine on Facebook can look at my pictures and, and sort of interact. Um, this week, I asked this question on my Facebook status. The question was this. What do you think of when you think of church? What do you think of when you think of church? And I think if we went out and did a, did a questionnaire on the street and, and just held up a mic in people's faces, we'd get a whole bunch of responses like hypocrites. A whole bunch of responses like claim one thing and live another. A whole bunch of responses like, well, it's, it's that building where they get together. That's church. Here's some of the responses I got. Good responses from people on my Facebook account there. One person said, it's the congregation where we meet as a smaller part of the larger body of believers. One person said, church is like an extended family. It's support. It's the place where we learn our history and how to have a relationship with God. One person said, the church is dysfunctional. And then they said, dysfunctional. Oh, wait, was it supposed to be good? The next person said, dysfunctional is good. God's love includes all of us, even with our dysfunctions. One person said, family and people that I can count on. One person said, churches for me is about focus. It's about time away from the distractions of my life to focus on worship of the Lord and learning from the Lord in ways that I don't get anywhere else. One person called it an oasis. One person said it's a place where you go to meditate with other believers that not only support you when times are tough as a Christian, but will pray and humble themselves and serve you like they do for their Lord. One person said this, and this gets at this concept of the image of the bride of Christ that we're talking about today. One person said It's a family I belong to for better or for worse. It's a family I belong to for better or worse. It's easy, friends, just like in our relationships and other parts of our lives, to focus on the worse. It's easy to try to make little divorces along the way in our lives as believers from the church, from the bride of Christ. Friends, that's the easy route. God calls mature, growing believers to something better than that. And that's what we'll look at today, friends. Let's go ahead and pray as we get into it. Lord God, we ask that our study today, our our time together in the Word would be led by your spirit so that we would continually be changed into your likeness. So that we would be people who for better or for worse 
participate in preparing the bride of Christ for eternity with you. Make us, Lord, like your son Jesus, working hard to prepare his bride for eternity with you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Many of you probably know the name Max Lucado. He's written a number of books. Max Lucado is a preacher in the Churches of Christ that is uh, affiliated with the same kind of church that we are historically. He's been well-known writing books for years and years, and he tells this story from one of his books. It's a story from, from ages past about a stately prince and a peasant girl who fall in love. It's sort of a strange one to understand, but the kind of story we've heard before. On the one hand is a prince who literally had the world at his disposal. There had never been a more perfect specimen of a man that had ever lived. Nothing about this prince was common. And you wouldn't be exaggerating to say that this prince was a perfect catch. The prince. But the peasant girl, apparently you get to be the peasant girl today. You're the prince, you're the peasant girl. On the other hand, there's this peasant girl. She's nothing more than average. At her best, she is plain. At her worst, she's just plain ugly. There are times when she's cranky and moody. And she rarely seems to achieve all that she ever could. To look at her from, from anybody else's vantage point... You'd never believe that she was worth much, but if you could see her through the eyes of this prince, you would, you would believe like he did that she was to die for. Well, because the prince determined that he couldn't bear to live without this princess, he asked her to be his bride. And the angels in heaven listened expectantly as she accepted his proposal. The prince promised his bride that he would come back to her soon. And the present girl, of course, pledged her faithfulness until he returned to take her as his bride. Now, up to this point, this little story I've told you could be like any of a number of fairy tales we've all heard before. In fact, at this point, the fairy tale becomes something where the bride and the groom live happily ever after. <coughs> but this plot takes a little bit of a bizarre twist. You would expect in this circumstance, awesome prince, less awesome bride, sorry. You would expect in a, in a story like this, Everything to be happy ever after. You would, inspect, you would expect the bride to be always thinking about this coming wedding, anticipating and planning for her special moment, for her marriage. But it turns out she rarely ever mentions it. You would think that her every waking moment would be lived out in anticipation and preparation for the coming of her prince. But by the way that she lives, you wouldn't even know that she's the bride of a perfect prince. More frequently than not, you can't even tell the difference 
between the bride and any of the other peasant girls in the village. There are even times when this bride can be seen flirting with the other men of the village in broad daylight. And who knows, who knows what she's doing when nobody's around. Can you imagine a peasant girl fortunate enough to be the object of a perfect prince's undying love? You would expect her to be absolutely captivated by his love, filled with a sense of awe and of wonder that she is fortunate enough to be loved by him. You would think she would be careful to remain pure in anticipation of the return of her royal groom. But instead, to look at her, you might wonder if she even remembers if she's engaged at all. How could a peasant forget about her prince? It's a good question to which we are the only ones that hold an answer. The story, of course, isn't a fairy tale, but it's a story about us, you and me, the church. We are the ones called the Bride of Christ. And if we are being honest, too often, far too often, observers might wonder if we've forgotten the groom to whom we are betrothed, to whom we are engaged. This morning we ask ourselves this question, are you delighting in the bride of Christ by looking at this image that the Bible uses for the church and learn through this image who we really are and what we are supposed to be? This concept of the church as Christ's bride is an image that is woven throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 62.5 says this through the prophet. It says, as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. In the book of Hosea, God commands this prophet to marry a woman who is an adulteress. Even though she is unfaithful and leaves her husband, God commands the prophet Hosea to purchase her back from the slave market as a way of showing a parable of God's love for his people. And this isn't just an act of empty symbolism. In Hosea, the second chapter, verses 19 through 20, God promises his people, and I will betroth you to me forever. Betroth means uh, engage. It's like an engagement. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. Verse 20 says, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Now, in, in order to understand this sort of image with more fullness, this image of marriage and being the bride of Christ, you have to understand what a Jewish wedding was like. There was an initial engagement in a Jewish wedding, much like we do now. It was called, that word we just read, betroth. It was called a betrothal. Often these marriages, Jewish weddings, were arranged between a man and a woman by their families. After that arrangement, after that betrothal began, the couple was considered husband and wife but they still remained apart. Then, at some unknown time, 
the groom would return to claim his bride. At that time, there would be a huge wedding feast lasting for days. There was a formal uniting ceremony of the couple, and they would live together and begin their life as a family. Now, during that betrothal period, both the groom and the bride-to-be were were supposed to remain faithful to their betrothed. As you can imagine, the time leading up to the wedding was filled with anticipation and excitement as the couple prepared for their reunion. Well, in their circumstance, hopefully it's their union for the first time. That kind of understanding of weddings is particularly important When you come to the New Testament, there are several places where the imagery of the wedding between Christ and the church pops up again throughout the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, verse 2, it says this, Paul is trying to persuade the Corinthian church not to be unfaithful to, to God, but to continue to remain faithful. And he says this, I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, to Christ. In the fifth chapter of Ephesians, Paul gives instructions about how a husband and a wife are to relate to one another. He challenges Christian couples to live in such a way that the wife respects and submits to her husband, and the husband is to love the wife as Christ loved the church, like it says. As a matter of fact, several times in Ephesians, the fifth chapter here, Paul relates the relationship between the husband and the wife to the relationship between Christ and his church. Listen to what he says in Ephesians, the fifth chapter here, verses 21 through 33. We're going to read this whole thing here. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should admit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but He nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This passage that we just read has been read in tons of weddings and fought over and grumbled about for years in our church culture. The word submit, as it refers to the attitude of a wife should have for her husband, has inflamed lots of controversy, and we don't need to get bogged down in that this morning. But notice what Paul is saying here in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. It's not that the husband and wife relationship is a picture of how the church and Christ are to relate to one another. Instead, Paul says 
that the relationship between Christ and his bride is a model for the Christian couple. The relationship between Christ and his church is the model for the Christian couple. Friends, so many of our lives and our experiences have been the opposite. We make assumptions about this body of believers that have been false from the beginning because we have assumed something other than the relationship of Christ and his church as the model for our relationships with one another. We have assumed all along that what I know about the rancor and the frustration and the sin and the pain of my relationship with you that we experience is how we gauge who we are as the bride of Christ. You see, the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ is the first model. The church serves and submits out of love and appreciation for the sacrifice Christ made on our behalf. And every one of our relationships with one another are to take that as its model. The basis for that kind of of, uh, relationship grows out of verse 21 here, where Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you want to know how Christian people ought to relate to one another, the model is the way Christ and the church relate as bride and groom. There's one more prominent place in the New Testament where this image of the bride of Christ comes up. It's in Revelation 19. Verses 6 through 9. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. John here describes a vision that God laid before him. This particular one portrays what will happen when Christ returns for his bride. It's a picture of the bridegroom coming to claim the one promised to him. Revelation 19, 16 through 9, I'm sorry, 6 through 9, says this. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. (laughs) Now, honestly, I have spent this week pondering this image of the bride, of the church as the bride of Christ. And there's part, part of me that, like some of you, probably about half of you, don't relate to very well because we've never been brides. I have never wanted to be a bride. I don't look particularly good in white lace. Don't even begin to go to the whole garter thing. There is a gender gap here. There's an issue of of a difference in a gender gap, at least 
probably. Um, I think that the reality is that most women can relate to the idea of anticipating a wedding much more than men do. I've participated in a whole lot of weddings. And it is very rare that a groom is as excited about all those ruffles and frills and, and, and beautiful parts of a wedding. I've never heard a guy say, you know, I really do prefer that pattern of plate. <laughs> Most of the time the guy says, you know what, honey, I, sure. You know what, at least if he's learning how he's supposed to react later on. <laughs> Guys seem to be a little more interested in the honeymoon than the wedding. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but once you get past that whole difference in gender thing, you realize that God is talking here about the intimacy of a relationship. Christ uses this imagery to describe his relationship with the church because he wants us to recognize how vastly deep his love for us is. How intimately he wants to know us and be with us in relationship. This is not a one-night stand that God calls us to as church. But many believers act as if it is. I pick and choose whatever bride I want to be a part of. Friends, this is about a lifetime of growing closer to God in our relationship with Him. And the place we learn that is this body of believers known as His bride. Make no mistake, friends. Lone Ranger, on my own, Christianity is a poor way to continue to become the person God wants you to be. Community relationships are the place where we learn to be who God made us to be. We've all experienced the opposite of that. In our relationships with other people, we've experienced the kind of isolation that happens. In our experience with this body of believers, many of us have experienced that kind of isolation. But we know, friends, that this is the body of believers that makes us into who God wants us to be. Christ has fallen head over heels in love with us as the body of Christ, as his bride. When Jesus says that our love is to die for, he meant it literally. It could only have been his love that led him to spread his hands out and allow nails to be driven through wrists and feet. As crown of thorns are wedged into his head and each breath became shallower on the cross. What kept him there is love for his bride. At a moment's notice, with all the power of the universe, he could have said, you know what, this, this is not worth it. The way that she's going to continue to treat me, forget it. The way that you and I have treated him sometimes, it wouldn't have been too surprising, I don't think, if he had said, you know what? She's just going to cheat on me time and again. 
But the depth of his love compelled him to continue to stand there for us, for you, for me, for this body of believers called his bride. Now, I have to tell you, given who we are and the way that we sometimes behave, I can't imagine why a perfect prince wants us as his bride. The church is far from perfect. (laughs) As we all know, we are sometimes downright cranky and cantankerous. We so rarely seem to live up to our God-given potential. There are times when our faithfulness wears pretty thin and our eyes wander. Hearts get sidetracked. And we let things like material possessions and power and false intimacy and prestige become more important in our lives than the bridegroom who loves us more than his own life. Sometimes I shake my head wondering how his never-ending love for us can be the case. There's something I've noticed about couples who are engaged to be married. You've seen some of this. In fact, there are shows on TV about this very thing. Some of you may have seen, shame on you, the show called Bridezillas. Some of you have maybe heard of that show. It's all about the preparation and getting ready for the wedding. It's all about getting ready for that ceremony. I've noticed couple after couple become obsessed with, with preparation. They want to make sure that on that wedding day, everything is, is just right. The dress and the tux and the hair, everything needs to be just right in preparation for that wedding. Do they prepare so that their fiancé will want to marry them? No. No, no, no. They prepare because their fiancé is marrying them. If the truth that the eternal Son of God is going to spend eternal, eternity with us in relationship doesn't change you now. Then what's going to? We are in our betrothal period. We're still being in, made into his image in our engagement, awaiting for that time when he will come back to us. We're still in our betrothal period. And the question we ask ourselves today is this. Do you still want to look your best for Christ? What am I doing? What are you doing? What are we as a church, you as a family? What are your relationships doing to prepare yourself for his return? 
Those are the last two blanks there. What am I doing to prepare myself for his return? You know what we're preparing ourselves for most of the time? And, and, and just go with me for a second on this. We are preparing ourselves for certain things that sometimes are extremely poor reflection of the bride of Christ. We prepare ourselves and our kids for things like becoming doctors. We're good at that. We're preparing our kids to become doctors, lawyers, athletes, teachers. We're preparing them to do things that this world says give you house, give you money, job security. Many of us are preparing our portfolios for the next economic downturn. Many of us are preparing ourselves for things and circumstances that have little to do with our fitness for perfect relationship with God in eternity. We have spent, in fact, many of us, without even knowing it, a lifetime preparing ourselves for things that somebody out there says is important. Forever believing the lie that love and faithfulness, that goodness, that kindness, that reflecting the heart of God in our lives should take a back seat to all those other things that we are so passionate. Because you see, friends, Jesus is spending this time in anticipation of the wedding day when he will come back and claim us as his bride. So, what are we doing to prepare ourselves for that return? Let's pray. Lord, we want to be people increasingly with each day whose lives are marked by greater intimacy with you, greater passion for the things that make your heart beat, greater concern for the things that will be a part of our relationship with you for eternity. We have all, Lord, like sheep gone astray, finding item after item, pathetic passion after pathetic passion that we think is going to fill us. So, Lord, in the clarity of moments like this, use your Holy Spirit to convict us so that your presence in our lives will increase, so that we will continue to make front and foremost in our lives the goal of becoming a bride prepared for you. Continue, Lord, to shape our families and our relationships and this congregation into the kinds of people and contexts and places where we each 
day and week and time together here on Sundays will be shaped increasingly into your bride. We ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.